This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Mummers! Olympians in Hellenistica! Horror Movie Essentials Part 1! And The Lead Mask Case. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with wolf guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a buck. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The garlands of holly hung on the eaves, the clamp and stutter of reindeer overhead, the general feel of crispness in the air as the sun dies forever, welcome us once more into the Kringle Hut, or I guess technically... For the first time once more into the Kringle Hut, because although Robin and I are devout Christmas celebrators, we generally don't do it on the podcast. But here we are celebrating, right? Right, because usually the the final episode before we uh, break for the year is uh, the live episode from Dragon Meat. Mm-hmm. But uh, this time around, we did do a Dragon Meat episode. In fact, this uh, segment ties into that. But it seems to me that the live via Zoom uh, episodes don't really work as a podcast. And, they do uh, not Dragon pop, Meat will, I feel. will drop that in some other video form uh, later, so you'll be able to check it out. Uh, but it doesn't feel the same without a live audience and so forth. So, And, and the audio quality is, is not good via Zoom. So instead, I'd like to do a callback to the uh, Ken and Robin Live for those of you who saw it or those of you who will have seen it by the time you're listening to this. Uh, there's a question posed to us which was how do you do a Christmas horror scenario that isn't just saving Christmas or fighting Krampus? And I did not have the as good an answer then as I believe I have now, because I think we should create a seasonal horror scenario based around mummering. 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 Uh, this, of course, is a, a major bit of Canadiana, specifically a tradition from Newfoundland, and by the way, I said that right for those of you who are from Newfoundland. It's the accent is on the land, not on the new, and certainly not Newfoundland. That, that nobody digs that over there. So this is one of those uh, traditions that traveled a bit and changed a bit on its way across the Atlantic. Uh, it's also called Janning, and uh, so basically, what you do is uh, starting on uh, the Feast of Saint Stephen's and going all the way to Old Twelfth Day. You dress up in a motley garb with your face covered by a a mask of some kind. And uh, you often try to create sort of a billowy outfit. There's uh, perhaps some mildly uh, risque uh, element to it where you might wear uh, your underwear or your grandma's underwear on the outside of the outfit. And you go and visit your neighbors and you disguise your voice and uh, your body shape is, is disguised. And you say, any mummers loud in? And they... Uh, let you into the house and you uh, do little scenes or you recite poetry or you tell jokes. And once they figure out who you are, you take off your costume. And then, of course, because it is Christmas and because it is Newfoundland, you drink. Right. And uh, to assume this garb is to mummer up. So uh, Ken, was was mummering uh, familiar to you at all? Probably not the, the Newfoundland version, but possibly an older version from uh, from across the way? Yeah, yeah. I knew about the 
Old English mummering, which was, I guess, technically Middle English mummering, because it doesn't datably go back before Middle Ages times, uh, like the 12th century, 13th century thereabouts. But yeah, I knew about the costumes and the busting into people's houses and uh, drinking and getting rowdy. And sometimes you would show up uninvited to the king's house and uh, mummer at him. And that, uh, and in Germany, apparently they had a, a similar tradition called the Mummenschans, where you would show up in face concealing costumes and play dice and you could challenge the king to dice. And uh, this all begins to sound very creepily like some sort of um, a human sacrifice bit, which is certainly what J.G. Frazier thought it was. And in fairness, he thought most things were a human sacrifice bit. He sort of <laughs> had that on his well, head. But you stay up drinking long enough, lots of things turn into human sacrifice. Exactly. Every, things that just began as simple Christmas fun become human sacrifice. And of course, obviously, you have mass strangers showing up at king's houses and challenging with the things that also has a, a lovely Chambersy vibe to it as well. So, um, yeah, I knew about the old English mumming, which got mostly shut down when rich people realized they didn't have to keep letting people into their houses. And then they had similar mummering in Philadelphia because any, any tradition in which you dress up and break into people's houses it makes Philadelphians all giddy. And so they, <laughs> uh, they had a plague of mumming and uh, in the most beautiful American fashion, they said, well, you can keep mumming, but you have to sign up with a licensed mummer community. And then they just appointed uh, rich, valuable people of the community to run the mummers clubs and said, you're liable for any damages. And you know what? That kind of fixed mummering. They still have mummer parades in Philadelphia and they mum around. But I assume that in Newfoundland, the mumming retains a certain glister of its medieval origins and fun. Right, Robin? Well, uh, I think like a lot of uh, things, it has put the older tradition of making trouble at Christmas uh, it's kind of, uh, it's been tamed. Mm -hmm. um, but back in the uh, 1830s, it was uh, violent. And this was because Newfoundland was violent in that period of time because there was tough poverty. Uh, the fishermen, of course, there's no welfare state to protect you when there's a bad catch. And the fishermen, who are often desperately poor and who are Irish Catholic, are in constant conflict with, uh, you guess it, the shopkeepers uh, and the landlords who are English Protestant. Uh, so that's that's 19th century uh, in Canada and in, in most uh, places outside of uh, Quebec. In, in most largish islands in the middle of the Atlantic, it seems. Yes. <laughs> yes. A similar tradition. Similar traditions. Of course, uh, let's point out that uh, Newfoundland is not part of Canada uh, at this point. No, it's a separate colony. Right. So it's part of a, uh, it can be violent. People will dress up as mummers and go around. There's two different traditions. The country tradition is the one we've been talking about where you go to people's homes. Uh, in the settlements, it was more of a parade and people wandering around. And it was in that context that uh, there were often assaults. And uh, in one case, uh, in 1860, a man named Isaac Mercer was uh, murdered. Uh, he'd been whipped the previous year uh, and had been uh, badly cut by whips. And he was attacked again by the same people. And uh, he had his brothers-in-law with him to protect him, but it was no good. He was beaten to death uh, by people uh, dressed as mummers. And there's a, a very little about that court case, about the actual situation and what that was. You have to assume it was some sort of personal grudge. It wasn't just a, a random killing. It was a, not random mumming. Right. Um, <laughs> they came from twice, and presumably there was... Uh, but at any rate, at that point... To bring back in another theme, once again, mummer licensing uh, was initially the solution. So the uh, the government then said, okay, there's going to be many licensed mumming next year, and there's only 150 mumming licenses. There was still trouble the next year. They banned it. But the tradition sort of continued until it kind of petered out around just before uh, World War One. And like a lot of things... The version of mumming that we think about today and associate with uh, Newfoundland and tourism and gift shops is a fairly new revival, a safer revival, a commercialized revival of an older, scarier thing. And that started, uh, there's a folk duo called uh, Simini, which uh, is spelled as if it's pronounced Simani, but it means Sim Savory is one of the people in the group and the other is Bud David. And uh, 
the first of those, I think, is no longer with us. But anyway, they performed this song called Any Mummer's Loud In, and it's about grandma thinking back to the good old days where it's not Christmas unless mummers show up, and it describes the tradition. And this song was so popular uh, or seen as uh, such a rich source of potentially uh, touristy activity that mumming has kind of come back. And so now there's uh, the parades and people visit houses and stuff. And it sort of took the many traditions that were uh, scattered through various communities and sort of all kind of quasi-codified it into one thing. So there are other things. Uh, another tradition was the ribbon fool, where you would show up and you're, you'd be wearing an outfit that was covered in ribbons, but your face wouldn't be masked. And I guess there was no guessing game required. You just went straight to the drinking. Mm -hmm. And in another one, you would go around with a an effigy of a, a wren on a pole. And uh, that would then move you straight to the uh, welcoming and drinking. And that is what goes back to the Irish version of that, which is the ran boys. Because apparently you say ran is ran, cat uh, and gar assure us. And uh, that is a tradition where you hunt a wren. And uh, the mummers are sort of the, the hunters or the, the companies to, to this uh, ritual. And that gets back into that yeah, sacrificial they would, aspect. They would sing, the ran, the ran, the king of the boards, and probably other words, but that's all that Avram Davidson told me. So, <laughs> Right. And, uh, and they're so, looking for the ran because he is the king of the boards. Yes. He, he's the winter king. Yes. He's a, he's a magic, uh, magic king of the boards is uh, possibly... Uh, Lulaw Gaffs, who is a shape-changing magician god, although I don't know that Lulaw Gaffs ever turned into a ram, but maybe he did. I mean, he, he turned into an owl, so right, I, right. but he's a magician. He's tricky. He's he's messed up. And in in uh, Irish, I believe uh, Lulaw Gaffs becomes sort of Nuada of the Silver Hand, who is also a hunter and also our buddy Nodens. So if you're looking for a a tie-in. Uh, to the mythos, there you have him. The, 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 the Ran, the Ran, the King of the Boards is actually a herald of Nodens. So that's, that's good fun. That'll, that'll get your, your Kringle going, right? Right. Um, and so now here's the easy part where we turn this not at all alarming or dangerous or sinister thing into a horror scenario. Uh, I think one of the advantages yeah, oh. of doing this as a, a Christmas special is that, uh, the uh, players or the characters do not have to celebrate Christmas in order to participate in this or find it uh, uh, creepy, so you're not saving uh, Christmas. Doesn't assume you like Christmas. You can find it creepy. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see, which of us has a game about a mysterious mask king who causes a breakdown in the social order and uh, people to lose themselves and sometimes their masks uh, turn uh, into their faces and their faces turn into masks. Why? Of course, yes. Uh, this is something for the Yellow King role-playing game. Uh, you can have your character's uh, from the Paris game, for some reason, need to go to uh, Newfoundland or uh, to Ireland or somewhere else in uh, England. Those would be a little closer and easier to get to. Any sort of community where this folk tradition happens at, at Christmas, they're all supposed to be kind of uh, rich kids slumming it in Paris. So it could be that, uh, you know, one of their parents is a much resented landlord somewhere uh, or a, a shopkeeper whose mm -hmm. uh, uh, shop is going to get looted. And uh, I think uh, pretty much uh, the scenario begins to uh, write itself. Uh, one of the other figures that will often show up in parades is a kind of a Welsh version of this, which is a horse skull dressed in, in uh, sometimes just sort of white sheets. So it looks like a horse ghost or sometimes quite colorful robes. Uh, that, of course, uh, suggests some sort of uh, kind of equine uh, skeletal uh, creature that the... Uh, investigators can uh, fight partway through. And the solution to the mystery, of course, is to find out who it is who's been reading The King in Yellow and has therefore infiltrated the community with uh, these masks that have these uh, terrible properties, how to get the masks away from people. And you could just as readily do it in a modern day uh, scenario. And this is normal now set up where, uh, again, everybody after the, the pandemic goes off to Newfoundland at Christmas for uh, some uh, reason that you then justify. And again, you're uh, dealing with these uh, loping, masked, grotesque figures uh, in the woods and coming into your house and uh, demanding to know if they're allowed in. And, uh, you know, you don't say no to the masked figures, do you? No. And there's uh, obviously a rich tradition of horror movies uh, in that general space. The Strangers starring Liv Tyler 
is maybe the best of the recent crop, but I seem to remember seeing ads at least for one where the mysterious figures outside had animal masks. So that's, uh, you take your, your, uh, strangers. your next, your next, exactly. The, so the, your next, the strangers funny games vibe, uh, can, uh, can pop into this. You can watch those for non Christmassy inspirations for how to make home invasion even scarier. And, uh, obviously once you start blending in the supernatural or shape shifting, uh, then you can have all manner of things where everyone is sure that they've shut the door and then they, you know, are back in and, oh, somehow the masked figure has gotten in because of course they shape shifted into one of the player characters. And then you can combine that with your, the thing fun for extra, which of us is which Christmas moment. And maybe as a, as a, as a change up. When, uh, you know, uh, the, the old Lula Gaff's uh, magic happens, you have a bleed over. And so that is the way that you get knowledge of how to defeat the mysterious mummers is uh, by being shapeshifted into. And so maybe you don't want to stop the the home invader quite as early as, as you could because you're trying to figure out how to, you know, stop the whole invasion, which, of course, is continuing outside. It's not just one Lula Gaff's guy, one Ran. It's a whole bunch of mummers that are up to no good, right? Right. Uh, there's a horror short uh, made by a team of filmmakers from Newfoundland called The Mummering, uh, if you want to get some things right on the nose. And uh, it's also, uh, if you could also do a, a, a cultural spin on this, uh, if you have uh, a character who's, uh, who's Inuit who shows up, they'll be, oh, this is, this is the Naliux. We have these, uh, the mass figures who show up and scare and interrogate children and then give them gifts. And uh, so you could have the suggestion that this is sort of a broader phenomenon that has touched uh, various uh, cultures. So there you go. There's our our, uh, holiday gift. That's come creeping down from the North Pole. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, So here's our our holiday gift to you. And it's time for us to uh, get in our sleds and move to a non-seasonal segment on the other side of this commercial. The second edition of Mutant City Blues. By Robin D. Laws. And now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Is now in print from Pelgrane Press. Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future, where 1% of the population wields superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community. When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call. New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign frame. A simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities. Expanded chase rules. And a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire, Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store. Or use the voucher code DIAGRAM2020 to get 15% off at the Pelgrane store. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, Noel Warford asked Ken, could you talk about the cosmology of your Hellenistica game? I'm curious if the icons are simply the Olympians with an addition or substitution or something more unusual. And once we get through the specifics, we'll move on to uh, Noel's second question, which is about um, moving onward from starting with Earth in, in F20, which I think we've covered a bit before, but is a thing that you like to always say. I do like to always say it. If I didn't like to say it, I wouldn't always say it, Robin. Yeah, I began, uh, for those of you who don't know, in the game 13th Age, uh, player characters, because they are great heroes and not ordinary schlubs, have relationships with the icons, the powerful figures within the world of the 13th Age. So they might have a relationship with the Archmage if they're a wizard, or they might have the relationship with the Archmage if they hate wizards. It, it all depends. And so you've got your Archmage and your uh, High Druid and your Elf Queen and your Orc Lord and all the fantasy archetypes you've come to know and love. Well, in my Hellenistica game, uh, I decided that rather than uh, sprinkle the place with ahistorical and not-on-theme magic items, that if I introduced 
relationships with the Olympian gods, you could still get your handy plus ones and plus twos by, you know, having a good relationship with those gods and praying to them. And so Ares gets the credit for that plus two blow that smote that monster, not just me. Um, so yeah, it began as just the, the 12 Olympians. There's 13 icons in 13th age, but even in ancient Greece, there were squabbles over who counted as an Olympian. And certainly once Dionysus showed up, Hestia famously gave up her seat at the high table to go tend the fire uh, so that uh, Dionysus could be an Olympian. And then Heracles becomes an Olympian. And by the time of my game, of course, the divine Alexander has become an Olympian. So we're already oversupplied with gods. So I mostly allowed my players to select whichever sorts of things that were worshipped in ancient Greece in the Hellenistic period as their their icons. And so right now, uh, the cleric is a cleric of the cult of Samothrace. And so the the great gods of Samothrace, the Megaloi Theoi, are one of his uh, icons. I have characters who definitely have Heracles as their icon. The Amazon uh, has Heracles as an icon because he is her ancestor via Hippolyta. The icons... Uh, or the, rather the Amazons only accept a few men uh, into the ancestral line and they have to be Heracles quality uh, or else no go. The Bard has Divine Alexander as one of his icons and then the rest are, are relatively traditional, although at one point the thief Myrene had uh, the Titaness Tethys as one of her icons because she had a very bad relationship with Poseidon and to get back at him took up a, a, a romance with uh, Tethys. So that is basically, it, it's really just a way of justifying plus ones and plus twos without having a bunch of, of magic items scattered about the place. But it also adds a great deal of flavor because, uh, first of all, they have to sort of justify why, you know, Hephaestus would help you with this thing or why Hermes would help you with it. And so there's a degree to which if a player's got a relationship with Hermes, they're tending to spend those pluses on uh, travel and communication, just like Hermes would. So it, 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 uh, reinforces flavor in a, in a very, very fun way. And then the, uh, metaphysics of the icons is a little more, uh, fraught than maybe it might be in some games because my game is taking the interpretatio Graecum as sort of a central plot point, which is to say, are foreign gods the same as Greek gods? And even in ancient Greek times, that was uh, sort of a, a, a chin scratcher as to whether or not, for example, Bast was just Artemis uh, with more cats than she has in Greece, or whether Bast is a different goddess and Artemis is a different goddess. And they just are sort of, you know, you know, they, they nod at each other in the God commissary, but that's it. But by the time of the Hellenistic era, there was a general assumption, I feel, to the extent that we have any evidence, which is surprisingly little in any direction that um, wherever you went, whatever God was in charge locally was actually just one mask of Zeus. And then you sort of sorted them all out in, in whatever other way. And certainly the Romans took that up uh, very excitedly with the Celts and the Germans trying to figure out which of the, of the gods of the Germans was Mars versus Jupiter versus Mercury. Uh, famously Odin or Wotan becomes uh, Mercury. They figured out that he was Germanic Mercury and, uh, and and that led to all manner of fun. So same things going on in the East. Yes, this, this mushing of gods together uh, did not start with Joseph Campbell. It did not. Um, it started with Herodotus, in fact. And, and then the big question is, what about places we haven't conquered? What about their gods? And also, what about this annoying god in Jerusalem whose worshipers are giant jerks if you try and come in and worship him? What's that about? So there are, you know, there's, you know, the Book of Maccabees and Hanukkah are all about what happens on one end of the empire, if you're attempting to force the interpretatio Graecum on things. And right now my players are invading India and trying to decide exactly what's going on with these Indian gods, none of whom seem to appreciate being invaded in the name of Zeus and divine Alexander. So there's a, there's a, there's a sort of a level at which they're trying to dig down into the ritual foundations of the universe. And of course, mess them up because they're player characters. So it, it's good fun. Right. So it's because the number 13, the 13 uh, icons is not, there's no mechanical reason why there can only be 13. Right. It's just that for uh, accessibility reasons, you know, Rob and Jonathan didn't want to have, yeah, you know, they didn't want to endlessly multiply them. Different right. But, but again, if you can just look the God up on Wikipedia, 
then that's a lot simpler uh, because I have started with Earth, he said. Right. Now, the the uh, published version of Hellenistica that you're working on is going to be not for 13th age, but for 5e. Mm -hmm. So to what extent are you carrying over the idea of uh, relationships with the gods as a replacement for plus two swords? Um, I'm going to try and foreground that. Obviously, with I think with most 5e products, if you depart from 5e, you sort of have to offer it as opposed to insist on it. But I'm going to offer it at the front and in, in a sort of a defaulty way. There's already that sort of behavior with the current treatment of godly domains in 5e. And I think that there is a interesting mechanical approach in the inspiration dice that bards get to hand out uh, in uh, 5e and in, in which uh, they, they, they pass you dice if you do good things. And I feel like in uh, this game, you could have basically devoutness dice in which if you are a good follower of Zeus or Athena or whomever, then you, you get dice for that. And those dice can be expended in the same way that inspiration dice can. And that, that won't necessarily replace the plus one and plus two sword in the same way that 13th age has does all through its mechanical systems. I mean, 13th age is a very, um, it, it's a very traditional F20 game, but uh, I think Jonathan and, and, and Rob were both sensitive to the golf bag syndrome where you're walking around with your, you know, endless supply of plus one and plus two trinketry and uh, tried to keep that, you know, tamped down a bit. And I, I feel like if you're given the offer to alter your game by uh, attention to the gods and then in a, you know, box in the back somewhere, it says, hey, here's how to play a, a sort of a, a, a purist Hellenistic game uh, and, and really lean into that. That that might at the very least it'll it'll be a a framework that the players can take on or GMs DMs can take on and and utilize and I, I feel like there's a lot of possibilities that that inspiration die mechanic opens up that Five E doesn't really explore that much because it's not in its interest to do so but uh, variant settings and variant cosmologies uh, can sort of move that forward a bit and and make a, a lot of hay with it. A lot of fun, hey. And uh, finally, if someone were running this for you, uh, which Greek or uh, Hellenistic deity would you uh, choose to have your main relationship with? I mean, I, I think a lot of it depends on what kind of character you're playing. Obviously, if you're playing a ranger, then it would make sense to have a relationship with Artemis or with uh, the Dioscuri, uh, Castor and Pollux, who are horse gods and uh, gods of just getting into fights a lot. And then if you're a cleric, uh, you would want to, uh, have, you know, a relationship with your, with your shrine god, whoever that happens to be. I obviously, as you know, uh, to the extent that I have a Hellenistic god as my, as my signifier, it's Thoth Dionysus, the god of, uh, writing and drinking. And so I feel like <laughs> he's, he's a strong patron if I'm, uh, back in Hellenistic times and looking around for stuff. So a character, if my character is a sort of a, uh, a wizard or a, um, uh, a know-it-all of any kind, really. I think that uh, Thoth Dionysus, or if the GM won't let me do that, Thoth Hermes and Dionysus would, would make fine icons. Uh, well, on, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, uh, head on uh, through this commercial and see what knowledge and or beverages lie on the other side. The Best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush 
Brush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Keep this podcast from plunging into Hades by joining beloved Patreon backers exactly like Jay Moore, Carl Schmidt, Louis Sylvester, Michael Manivelle, and Phil Bailey. The whir of the projector, the cigarette smoke curling up in the beam, the whatever that is underneath our feet as we walk to our seats in the center aisle, welcome us once more into the Cinema Hut. And in the Cinema Hut, Robin, you and I realized, uh, after a bit of interrogation from our beloved publisher, Kat Tobin, and a couple of other people, that we had never done a horror 101. We've done a lot of 101s here in the Cinema Hut, trying to help people into the various subgenres and sub-subgenres, but we haven't just sort of laid out what I think I consider, and maybe, Robin, you consider as well, one of the, if not the greatest genre of horror, certainly one of the greatest genres of horror, and the one that has inspired most of my professional work, the horror genre. And of course, horror has been almost one of the spines of of film development, uh, even if it's not leading the charge in terms of uh, script sophistication, it's doing lots of other things. It's addressing things the rest of the genre of the medium can't do. And it's, of course, pioneering a lot of the sort of practical and special effects that uh, make the rest of uh, cinema richer by their presence, right? But Ken, the reason we haven't done a Horror 101 is that there's too many films to cover in a single segment. And if we did that, we would have to do an entire series. And if we did an entire series... The really smart thing to do would be to start it just before we take a two-week break and then pick it up when we come back in 2020. And so uh, that's absolutely what we're going to do. So let's start our uh, Horror 101. Uh, We're just going to start chronologically and build out our list from uh, week to week. And uh, we might get to a a logical break or we might just go uh, for the rest of this 15-minute segment and stop and pick it up later. So the... Uh, I think sort of the pivotal early horror film that kicks off an entire style of filmmaking or typifies it is Robert Vina's uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, silent film from 1920. Uh, Now, I guess we're sort of, if you're using this segment to introduce somebody else to horror, I don't know if you want to start with the silence uh, because it is a deep dig for a lot of people to embrace silent cinema. I know that I... It's kind of a double ask. (laughs) Yeah. But if we're going to do it chronologically, it would be silly to start in the 30s and then have a coda at the end. Uh, So that brings us to uh, Caligari. It establishes the uh, surreal uh, dreamlike quality of horror and the idea that the sets are distorted and there's uh, uh, still a lot of uh, theatrical performance in it as runs through all of silent film. And it is definitely a, uh, you know, it's reality horror as is uh, the uh, Yellow King. And it's a, you know, a, a seminal work in pretty much every way. Mm-hmm. And it, it completely alters the look of not just horror, uh, but also, you know, a lot of what we think of as, as noir and uh, crime fiction And any sort of film, you know, Hitchcock, I think you can draw a bright line from things like uh, Suspicion and uh, and and Vertigo all the way back to Caligari, that the the sense of of a skew universe being reflected in a skew screen experience is, uh, again, something that Vina gives us with Caligari. Uh, The next one uh, in our list of all time classics, and we are obviously going to be skipping over some mostly classics, near classics, subclassics, and uh, things that are maybe not immediately in the mainstream of uh, European and American horror, just because of the nature of the, of the beast. But the next one, regardless of how you count it, is Nosferatu, the original silent 1922 version by the great F.W. Murnau. And Nosferatu is an absolutely timeless classic, assuming that you watch it with people who want to watch a absolute timeless classic instead of laugh like idiots at a silent movie. And that is the the only problem with watching Nosferatu with an audience 
is you have to vet the audience, basically. I've seen Nosferatu in the best imaginable circumstances projected on a screen in Rockefeller Chapel in uh, University of Chicago with uh, a period soundtrack being played live and college students being terrible still laughed when Nosferatu walked fast. So there's only so much that you can do, but it is a magnificent film and there's a lovely a uh, re- reconstructed version from Kino Lorber that you can get for not a lot. Obviously you can get it. Uh, it's in public domain, so you can get garbage versions for free on YouTube. Treat yourself to that Kino Lorber disc. It's a beautiful film. Watch it, you know, with only trusted friends in a uh, blacked out living room. And trust me, you'll still creep yourself out a good bit. It still works. Right. So it's an unlicensed version of Dracula mm-hmm. with, a version of the of the count who is uh you know clearly uh bulbous headed and and uh, rat like and a spreader he's not the the romantic uh vampire that will uh visit again uh later in the history of uh, filmed horror and uh it is uh sort of has a again uh has this kind of uh logic defying uh dreamlike quality and and has no clear protagonist it keeps shifting uh, what kind of film it is. There's the, and uh, Murnau looked at Stoker's Dracula and thought the most exciting part of this book that I'm going to devote the most time to is the voyage of the Demeter <laughs> across the English channel. That's the thing that I find really interesting. And some of the other stuff I'm going to kind of throw away. We did an entire segment on uh, Nosferatu. So you can plug that in the uh, good old uh, search bar on uh, the Ken and Robin site and uh, pull that up, but no mention of, uh, early horror would be uh, a list at all with Nosferatu. Yep. Uh, so now we have an interesting oddball choice. We have uh, Haksan, Witchcraft Through the Ages. This is from 1922 by Benjamin Christensen. This is sort of a documentary, but they, uh, it's a survey of the history of witchcraft, but it's got all the fun stuff in it, uh, none of the responsible folklore, and the recreations of the uh, witch's Sabbath and all of the uh, mythology of the witch in medieval Europe are uh, brilliantly evoked. And so uh, because it's early days, uh, you wouldn't think, oh, quasi-documentary is going to show up on a list of horror essentials, but uh, this one sure does. Yeah, and it's uh, weird. It, it's just, it, it, it's like those books that you used to see when you were a young lad going to used bookstores and you would find books that would be uh, produced... Uh, in respectable hardcover, but they were from the lurid 1960s witchcraft revival. And they would have, you know, titles like witchcraft around the world or witchcraft through the ages. And you'd open it up and, oh my goodness, would there be things you did not want your parents to find you reading? And Haxon has very much that same vibe. Uh, it is, it is not, uh, a decorous film. This is before they had, you know, codes of conduct or anything going on. Lots of stuff going on in Hexen. And it's, right. worth it's also a Swedish film. So there's yeah, less right. uh, sort of American starchiness going on. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's a lot going on. And some of it is, is just luridity for luridity's sake. Some of it is genuine social concerns from the 1920s sort of refracted. It, it's a, it's a good experience. I don't know that I, um, uh, that I think it's, you know, front to back a great, film but it is front to back a box of great stuff that shows up in film so that's that would be my take on hexen uh next we uh begin to get to the sort of uh, named stars of horror because we're going to talk about lon cheney senior not lon cheney jr uh lon cheney senior was by all accounts a terrible human being but he was also uh brought that into a sort of a, an unrestrained physicality and a master of acting through weird makeup and disguise. And he brings it to Hunchback of Notre Dame from 1923, directed by Wallace Worsley, who I know nothing else about. And uh, Cheney made a bunch of movies, many of them lost, many of them probably better than Hunchback. But he was the guy to go to if you wanted to be creeped out in the 20s in silent film. And... There's a lot of stuff going on in Hunchback. It's not just the standard story. There's like a, a a beggar's convention that sort of prefigures M in a lot of ways or freaks or other films about the sort of sordid underbelly of, of humanity. It's got a lot going on over and above Cheney's performance, which is again, uh, you, th- this is not your, your um, uh, happy go lucky Quasimodo, I guess. Right. Right. And not all adaptations of Victor Hugo's novel 
could be considered horror movies, uh, but this one definitely is. And it, it turns that novel into a platform for horror. And it has, I think, our first key visitation with that classic horror trope, the sympathetic monster who must be destroyed. And, mm. uh, you know, the, the climbing the tower at the end, there are echoes, you know, King Kong in a way follows this pattern. Uh, Frankenstein will follow this pattern, but it, it is, I think, uh, well, first of all, it's still for a silent film, still uh, gripping. I remember seeing it in grade eight and uh, grade eight class being uh, totally into it after initially having to break through the barrier, the different storytelling style. And so I think it absolutely needs to be in a list of horror essentials. And uh, Cheney also was a makeup designer himself. He does, he created his own makeups. He was known as the man of a thousand faces. And so he is uh, also a, a technical pioneer as well, which is why there is a, a second film on the list. And uh, it's another literary adaptation, although much less fancy literature. Uh, this is Phantom of the Opera from 1925. This was directed by Cheney and three other people. And this is still, I think, sort of the classic visual image of the the phantom when he takes his mm -hmm. mask off and is uh, true to the Gaston LaRue novel in that it is, uh, he is not a romantic figure. He's the phantom is a menacing one. And it cleans up the novel, which is a bit of a pulpy mess, and then becomes the template for what you leave in the phantom of the opera when you adapt it in any other uh, media ever since. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's uh, got the great reveals and is, uh, you know, even more so creates the uh, the pattern of the uh, the damsel threatened by the monster, but not in this case, a sympathetic monster uh, that we'll again see again and again uh, through uh, horror up until uh, the uh, post-feminist era sort of shakes that up. And the, and the set design on Phantom of the Opera is really, really good. A lot of these these sort of cinema classics, even back to Caligari, are, are actually starring their set design. Nosferatu, you can certainly make a similar argument. But uh, The Phantom of the Opera, the opera house in that movie is really very strong and very good. And it still works just when you have that opening bit with the lanterns uh, on the on sort of the, the balconies. And you, and you get a sense of how big and gothic and weird this opera house is. It's just a very strong presentation. And it works really, really well. Going back to Murnau... His Faust from 1926 is, it's not, you know, pure horror, but their performance of Emil Jannings as Mephistopheles is one of the best horror performances, even again, if it's in a, uh, a somewhat distanced medieval-y sort of a world. And the effects of Mephistopheles opening up his cape and unleashing pestilence on the city, it may be the first disaster sequence that works uh, as horror in film. Certainly it's one of the uh, first great ones. And uh, again, it's Murnau. And so you get all the great shadow and, and story effects and the worship of um, uh, the good woman, in this case, the fair Marguerite that Murnau is famous for. And you get it uh, wrapped up in that w most wonderful of devil stories, Faust. I, I think again, it's, it's maybe a little more borderline horror. Like some of these have been in, in our early building blocks, but the Mephistopheles presentation and the moments where he is unleashing his power are truly terrifying. And if we, if we get to Sleeping Beauty in 1959, I will make a similar case that it contains a brilliant horror short film in a fairy tale, which is basically what Faust is. Right. It, it sits on the boundary between horror and fantasy, but has a horror imagery in it that is uh, very stirring and exciting. Uh, now, the thing about Faust, uh, in comparison even with Murnau's Nosferatu, is that it definitely has that silent movie pacing, is that the storytelling in a lot of cases is not particularly accelerated. The language of cinema is new to people. Uh, the idea is sometimes that they have to emphasize the point again and again and again, they think, for the audience to get it. For those of us who are used to faster storytelling. Some of these are a bit of a challenge. And before I think we close, the one horror classic that I haven't put on my list, because I think it is very slow and not something I would want to introduce somebody else to, maybe you want to speak up, however, for Carl Dreyer's Vampire. Um, I, I was actually had exactly that same thought as, should I put Dreyer's Vampire on? I have watched Vampire three times, and I think I've seen all of it. Um, I, I go to sleep. That movie is 
uh, soporific, but not in a bad way. It's intended to do that. I mean, Dreyer is like, yes, I've accomplished my mission. Yeah. And it's from 1932. So it could have had sound. It yeah. just doesn't. There's just tiny bits of sound. It, there, the, most of it is shot silent. There is a bit of sound in it, but it's the sort of thing that, you know, you, you, you know, blink and you'll miss it because you'll be asleep for 15 minutes. I mean, Vampire is, is super is super effective and super powerful when you're awake for it. And because you are going to sleep in a movie about dreaming about vampires, it's, it works then too, but I can't just say, uh, yes, new people or new people to horror or new people to silent film should, you know, jump on Dreyer's vampire. It's, it's roughly based on Carmilla, but it is not a sexy movie in the way that later movies about Carmilla will be. This is more of a, Sort of a a slow, drifty away from reality movie, um, and it's you know it, it's got it's got stuff in it. it it's it, I think it's worth watching, but you know, brew a pot of coffee. So, so this is one that we are mentioning in order to not be asked why we didn't mention it, and, and that's why we didn't right, mention exactly. It. Well, um, as I sort of thought, we just got to the through the silent era. Uh, so uh, when we're back in twenty twenty one, we'll pick it up with the sound era and the blossoming of uh, American horror, particularly through uh, Universal. So uh, rejoin us for that. And uh, at this point, it's time for us to uh, shake off the, the bats and the popcorn and head to our final segment. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. It's time once more to wander into that most ill-defined of huts, the hut where the paranormal uh, meets the uh, eccentric where uh, strange takes on history meet uh, things that uh, just don't have a definable uh, thing to them, except that they're mysterious. And there we have sitting in the corner, the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're uh, sipping their kombucha and they're not even sure whether this is a UFO story or not, because we are going to talk about the lead mask case. Uh, Ken, this happens in 1966. So uh, at the end, we're going to have to say the words fall, Delta, green, and scenario. Uh, but at the uh, uh, beginning, why don't you whisk us to a suburb of Rio Janeiro, where this most peculiar story takes place. Right. Uh, this is set in the suburb of Niteroi, and specifically on a hill called the Moro de Vintem, the Vintem Hill. A kid flying a kite stumbles on a bad smell sees two what look like dead bodies, runs off and calls the cops. The cops come up and they discover that the, the men are Manuel Pereira da Cruz, age 32, and Miguel Jose Viana, age 34. They are uh, both electronics repairmen. They're both friends. They live in Campos dos Goitacazes, which is a uh, small town about 175 miles away from that hill. Uh, when the bodies are searched, they're wearing raincoats. They have on them uh, a notebook full of electronic parts discussion and a note, which uh, in bad Portuguese reads 4.30 p.m. Be at the determined place. 6.30 p.m. Swallow capsules. After effect, protect metals. Wait for mask signal. And that last bit of obscura perhaps explains why 
On the bodies or near the bodies, the accounts differ, are found two lead masks. Uh, the masks, they, they look sort of like big chunky Ray-Bans. They're not like full-on face masks. Uh, so they're not welder's masks or anything else. They were clearly snipped out of sheet lead and uh, meant to be uh, worn over the eyes like a blindfold. Also, uh, the police uh, investigate further and discover that the dead men had brought three million cruzeros with them on their trip. They claimed it was to buy a car uh, when they left home. Uh, that, you know, Brazilian inflation was in its one of its hyper phases. So that's about three thousand uh, dollars American. And they had apparently left home on August 17th, 1966, and they'd climbed up the hill. There, there, there was evidence that uh, they'd stopped off and bought the raincoats. They'd stopped and bought uh, a bottle a bottle of mineral water and insisted on keeping the receipt so that they could return it for the deposit. They apparently had no intention of dying on top of that hill. And uh, up they went onto the hill. The cops looked around further. They found a guy who'd argued with Cruz, uh, a guy named Alicio Gomez, who was also a, an electrician. And they thought, aha, we've got him. And, and he says, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, we argued, but we argued over the device that we built in Cruz's backyard, which blew up. And Cruz's dad said, yep, built a device. It blew up. They fought about it. And <laughs> that uh, he and Cruz and Viana had all seen a UFO on June 13th on the beach at Atafona, which is about 25 miles away in the other direction. And that if you asked around, Fisherman would back up his story about a UFO crashing into the sea. And anyway, shouldn't you be looking at Mars for this? Because it turns out that Gomez, Cruz, and Viana were all scientific spiritualists who were interested in contacting Mars. And at this point, one imagines the cops threw up their hands and said, if you people aren't going to cooperate, we're going to go investigate real crimes. Because in fact, they did not do, for example, what you might do, uh, a tox screen on the bodies. So we don't know if they died from being poisoned. Um, there we are. They just sort of died on the top of the hill. No one can figure out how or particularly why. Uh, there is more to this story, Robin, but I figured I would stop there and let you jump in if you wish. Right. So one of the big questions about this is to what extent it is a UFO case, that there are UFO sightings surrounding this. They were interested in Mars, but it's one of those weird stories where, you know, there's nothing paranormal about their deaths as far as we know, because we don't know why they died. Mm -hmm. uh, and what they were up to sounds weird, but we still don't understand uh, anything about uh, what it is. And so, but of course, if you look around uh, for an incident, uh, especially anywhere in the 1960s and say, was there UFO stuff happening? It turns out, uh, well, uh, yes, there was, because apparently the, the Brazilian Navy is uh, is detecting uh, signals early on. And uh, there's also a precursor victim, right? Yep. Uh, there is a another TV technician. His name is Hermes. And he was allegedly found on a hill in 1962, the Moro de Cruzeiro, 85 miles from Campos and 175 miles from Vintem Hill. No report as to whether or not he was wearing a lead mask or had been found with a lead mask, although obviously that gets added to the stories later because Brazilian newspapers and Western ufologists cannot leave this story alone. As the newspapers are blowing up the story initially, um, there's a woman named Gracinda Barbosa Coutinho de Souza who lived in Niteroi and saw a UFO, an orange oval UFO on the hill that the day that um, uh, Cruz and Viana went up the hill, the 17th. She didn't know about the murder story and her husband tried to keep it away from her, didn't, you know, show her any newspapers until he realized that that was not going to work. And so they came in and, and told their story. But again, whether that is the sort of thing that you confabulate later, who can say? But, uh, you know, everyone seems to think that uh, Ms. de Sosa is on the up and up. So who am I to mock? And then in 1967, uh, there is a report that uh, police delegate Sergio Rodriguez has exhumed the bodies and is closing in on a suspect. No more news from Sergio. He's off the board. But in 1969, February of 1969, a newspaper reports that an underworld figure named Hamilton Bazzani had confessed that uh, basically there was an unknown woman who had fingered Cruz and Viana as idiots because she was in their 
scientific spiritualist uh, seance circle and that they had brought Bazani in to basically rob these guys once the spirits had told them to take three million cruzeros up a hill. And uh, that Bazani, according to the newspaper, said that he made them take poison, or rather that the unknown men that Bazani was a front for, because he didn't confess that he did it, made them take poison and then took their money, uh, which leads to a lot of questions, not least, why the lead masks? And why make them take poison? Why not just beat them up and take their money? That seems like a lot of trouble to go to. Uh, so that struck me as a as a particularly bad veil out when I read that. But that has one of those, the cops are tired of having reporters ask them about this. Mm-hmm. You've got Hamilton Bazzani for a number of other crimes, including having an overly interesting name. Right. And That's probable cause in Brazil. That is probable cause. And so we'll just have him... Uh, you know, let's get the list of things we need confessions for out of the table. And so so this story has, uh, as you suggest, has really resonated with uh, ufologists because this happens during uh, the height of the 60s wave and uh, people in that circle think that it's going to happen any day, that the big revelation, the breakthrough is going to happen and that everything is moving. And so anything uh, interesting or suggestive gets swirled up into that sensation of everything coming to a head, which of course is famously in the world of UFOs. It never quite does. And uh, Valet, who is uh, Jacques Valet, who's one of the more uh, skeptical of uh, UFO researchers, although not a UFO debunker, looks at the case later. And uh, I think you find that he adds to that great tradition of confusing the narrative even further. Yes, he adds he adds uh, new names and places that don't seem to appear anywhere else. And he says that the skins of the body were pink when found, but that given their state of advanced decomposition, that doesn't matter. So uh, Valet is, is giving with one hand and taking with another. It's in his book, Confrontations. If you want to dig that out, it's in sort of the introduction. There's also a lovely sketch map of the top of the hill. Uh, so if you wanted to game it out, uh, I, I think that Valet's work is is good if you are doing a sort of reality horror with it, as the the various versions of this story sort of layer onto each other uh, in the way that the best UFO cases always seem to. But I don't know that Valet's investigation in 1980 actually gets us any closer to the fundamental mystery of what are these guys doing on a hill and what did they think they were going to accomplish and what killed them? Uh, what happened to the money, I think, is the least mysterious part of this. I think probably the same guy that uh, found them while playing uh, with his kite in a different newspaper version of a different story says he saw them lying down on the hill the next on the 18th, but didn't approach them. I think that is code for approach them, took their money because he thought they were asleep and then discovered they were dead, but hopes no one would ask about the money. Um, I think that the money being missing is the easiest thing in the world to explain. But uh, I grant you the lead masks, the strange notebooks, the fact that their scientific spiritual texts found in their houses talked about the intense luminosity of the beings they were attempting to encounter. Uh, all of that points to some kind of elliptony uh, underfoot, that it's not just a couple of guys that got suckered by Hamilton Bazzani or an unknown lady into going up a hill uh, with a bag of money. Right. And so, uh, as I said at the top, this happens in 1966. This means it's a fall of Delta Green scenario. So uh, there are all sorts of uh, mythos entities that you could attempt to contact uh, psychically who have a science fiction-y aspect to them. Some of them might even uh, ride around in UFOs. Others have discarnate uh, consciousness. Some of them uh, might even want cruzeros. Uh, for example, you know, I think the Mego occasionally need to like uh, source cabins and uh, uh, head jars and uh, liquid and stuff. And they control also, the, the Mego have human puppets. They have human puppets. They need the money. They need spending money for things. If you have to go down to the hardware store, you can't always just fly back to Yugath when you need a, an Allen key. Nope. So they're the uh, obvious one. If they're strange, Figures of uh, alarming luminosity. Perhaps we're talking uh, star vampires. Is there uh, something particularly on on Mars, though, or a, a dread consciousness that they uh, uh, might have been uh, reaching? I mean, the, the the Martian thing that I like is Clark Ashton Smith's Yovumbus, but that's not really a, a bright and glowing luminosity. I think the on Mars is sort of their misunderstanding or possibly their relatives' misunderstanding of what they were doing. I 
thought of Daoloth, the render of the veils, when I heard the notion that they'd taken care to cover their eyes completely, because of course, if you see the tiniest fragment of Daoloth's uh, mathematics, then you become uh, subsumed by him. And I, I like the idea of, of contacting him with electrical diagrams that you create an electrical diagram that, that echoes Daloth, that he speaks through you and perhaps even appears in the form of an orange ball of flame. We don't know he doesn't, but there's many, as you say, Cthulhu entities that might be the best plan to cover your eyes with a lead mask. If you're going to talk to them, um, the space eaters are another possibility. Frank Belknap Long's uh, space eaters, which are in fact, luminous cones of light that come out of the sky and do unspecified bad things. They come out of space and eat you is my guess. Yeah. The, among other things. But that's, again, the sort of thing that might cause weird uh, signals to be picked up by the Brazilian Navy or that might look to uh, fishermen like a UFO crashing into the water as if you've got a space eater that has landed from, uh, well, from space and uh, is questing around looking for its contactees, Viana and Cruz. So there's lots of, lot, lot, I mean, that's one of the great things about this story is that there is this little nugget of happening but that so much of it doesn't lead anywhere that you're not closed off. I mean, the fact that they died without a mark on them, that could be, you know, hounds of Tyndalos that just went through them in time and sucked up their, their life force, or it could be any number of things that, that just kill them and leave them on the, on the, on the, on the top of the hill. The, the element of the raincoats I think is, is fun. The notion that whatever they meet might be squishy or slimy and they don't want to get goo on themselves. I, I, I think that's fun. I don't think it was raining in uh, August of 1966 in Niteroi. Maybe it was, but uh, it, it doesn't seem, there, there's no reports that it was raining. The reports are just that they were very nervous that they wouldn't make their rendezvous, um, one, one assumes, at 4.30 p.m. So uh, I guess the final, um, and we need to make this uh, follow Delta Green, is the intelligence world uh, aspect and the thing that gives the agents their uh, mission to show up on the scene and uh, they know it's going to be a tough time trying to liaise with uh, Brazilian authorities. They're not necessarily uh, wired into the uh, the same network of alliances as they're used to dealing with. Uh, what's the what's the spy angle? I mean, the, the spy angle can begin, you can do a couple of different directions. First of all, there's this UFO that's at sea. Perhaps uh, the U.S. Navy works through its contacts in the Brazilian Navy. Uh, possibly it's Majestic that's work working with the H-Traffic Office in the Brazilian Air Force. That's the uh, Brazilian version of Project Blue Book. And so they've heard about it and are scrambling. And you, Delta Green, are following a Majestic team. And maybe they heard about the uh, UFO on the 13th and the Majestic team showed up. And then the two guys turned up dead. And you, Delta Green, are... Did Majestic kill those guys or did they do something? Where is the Majestic team? We haven't heard from them. They've gone to ground. Did they vanish? Did they get eaten by the space eaters? What's going on? And so you still get to investigate it while not wanting to trip any secondary or backup Majestic triggers. The other way to link you in is, of course, if Hamilton Bazzani is a genuine crime figure and was genuinely connected with Gomez, Cruz and Viana in any way. Possibly they were building him a device to, I don't know, uh, read documents at a distance or break into bank vaults or do something else. They were using their mythos abilities for crime or uh, in classic sort of Coen Brothers style. He was bullying or blackmailing them into doing it. And Bazzani has left tracks that U.S. law enforcement is interested in. Uh, Customs Bureau, if he's smuggling stuff up. Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, if he's tied into the drug trade, just the FBI for general purposes. Bazzani might have some American partner or dealer that hooks you in, and then you go and have to follow it up a couple of years later and find out what was happening and what happened to all their electronic equipment and what happened to those books. And though that's weird that they were mysteriously scooped up by Elicio Gomez, who claims not to have been a part of it at all, but here he is with all of this stuff. And look at that. There's more uh, UFOs going on in Brazil in the late sixties. Maybe these are connected so you can, you can pick it up at that end or you can just retcon Bazzani into it uh, from the beginning. And uh, you've come down investigating Hamilton Bazzani, who is rising in the Brazilian occult underworld, uh, possibly some Brazilian branch 
of the uh, cult of transcendence has recruited him because he uses his mythos buddies, his mythos toadies to, to commit crimes for him. And uh, that's how you stumble onto it. So there's lots of roads into the story, but I think the most satisfying one is one where you, the player characters are just too late to know exactly what happened on the hill rather than the one where you, the player characters have to, um, in, uh, invisibly murder, uh, uh, Cruz and Viana and lay them out on the hill with their lead glasses and, uh, use that as the veil out of an even worse story. I, I like the first version better than the second. Well, I think there's, there's no more appropriate way to end a, a wild, wild year than a wild, wild story. Uh, so, uh, at this point, uh, we're going to sign off and, uh, we are going to take our customary two week holiday break. Uh, so, uh, maybe you could dive back into some, uh, Ken and Robin archives, uh, if, uh, if you, uh, start pining, uh, for Eliptonian weirdness and history and gaming and so forth. But we'll be back with a brand new episode on, uh, January 5th, uh, featuring, among other things, the second part of our Horror Essential series. And so until then, whatever holiday you, uh, celebrate or escape from, we're wishing you a, uh, happy, safe, and uh, enjoyable one in these uh, continuing strange times. Yes, everyone stay as as merry as you possibly can under the circumstances and stay even safer than that, if possible. Uh, we value you all and don't want to lose a single one of you between now and January 5th. So everyone stay cool and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by Jim Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from the creeping Nosferatu by chipping in alongside such backers as... Ben Brigoff. Ray St. Quentin. Jeff F. Jeff Cars and Jean-Francois Paradis. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Acquire our classic design, nod knowingly if you're a Tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>